Hi friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. It's so good to have you with me today. We're in Advent now. We're fast approaching Christmas and I wanted to explore today um, a little bit of maybe the history or the location you know, what did the nativity actually look like? We have images of Christmas cards of wise men and shepherds all coming around a, a, a child in a crib, in a stable. Actually, what did it look like? And to do this episode today, I wanted to speak with Ian Paul. Ian Paul's a theologian, is a writer, is a speaker, is an academic consultant, uh, blogger, has uh, been a church leader. And uh, I want to interview him as a theologian on the nativity. What does the text actually tell us about the birth of Jesus? What did it look like in terms of what we understand of the geography and the location and the people and life in Bethlehem? Uh, could we believe that Mary and Joseph would have known nobody in Bethlehem or actually would they have known a number of people there? So that's what we're going to explore today. What does the nativity scene look like if we were to take it straight from the scriptures? So I hope that you find this interesting, inspiring. Do give it a share, give it a like, tell people about it. And here we'll jump straight in with an interview about the nativity scene with Ian Paul. Ian Paul, welcome to Making Disciples. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Great to be with you. I want to talk to you today about uh, the Christmas story. The, the, the image that many of us have is that nativity scene on the Christmas card. It's the perfect image. Baby Jesus in the crib. Uh, Mary and Joseph around. Wise men. And uh, you've probably got some angels flying around the sky. Shepherds coming along. It's a beautiful scene. Uh, but it's not what we actually find in the Bible. So, you know, why is it so important that we get back to, or at least as followers of Jesus, understand that original image found in Scripture? Why is it so important rather than having a romanticized picture of that scene? Why is that? Well, I think, Chris, I, I think there are two really baffling things I find about Christmas. So here's the first thing. The first thing is that, uh, that in my experience in, in the local church, Christmas isn't is the time when we put in loads of effort. You know, people go around, they have cards and we have services and we have our carol services. And we have we, we used to have our, our first special Christmas event in the middle of November, uh, having a whole sequence of things going on. And it's a great opportunity to invite people and so on. And then what's the what's the net outcome of that? My observation is very little. We know when I was full-time in church ministry, Christmas to New Year was not the time when new people came to church by and large. By and large, new people tend to come to church. Actually, at the end of the real year, which was in the summer, and people go away and they go on holiday and they put their feet up and they think, hey, do you know, what's life about? And then they have to sort of start up again with a whole new habits. We always found that, that, that when we were growing, our numbers increased in September, not in January. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think January is a completely wrong time to be doing New Year's resolutions and stuff. People are just, they're hunkering down, it's cold, it's winter, they don't want to go out. So, so here's the thing in the local church. We put masses of effort and resource into the lead up into our Christmas services. People come, but they don't stick. So that's number one puzzle about Christmas. Here's the second puzzle about Christmas is that Christmas is all about snow and 
animals and there's no room at the inn and you know the primary school players always got someone being the innkeeper saying go away no room and all that kind of thing you know so you always pick the particular kid for that and and then you've got the animals and the sheep and the donkeys and all that and then the wise men come in even though that hasn't happened until a couple of years later at epiphany and and jesus jesus is uh an outsider you know he's poor little jesus he's in he's being born in a stable drafty stable and he's neglected and you know nobody goes, we all go ah oh, poor jesus and my feeling and what's really strange about that is that the new testament doesn't mention any of that at all in the New Testament of Jesus' birth, there's no stable, no inn, no animals. Well, there's the sheep implied because shepherds come along, I guess. And, and Jesus is not an outsider. So here's our two puzzles. We've put loads of effort in and it bears very little fruit on the one hand. And we've got all these ideas about Christmas and they bear no relation, as far as I can see, to what the New Testament says about Jesus' birth. Now, here's the question. <laughs> Are those two things related? I think they might be. And here is how I, I connect them. I said, if you invite people along and you say to them, look, over there, away from daily life, exceptionally, in a kind of slightly sentimental fairy tale thing, look at poor Jesus over in the stable. Let's go and see him at Christmas. And then when we've done that, let's go back and get on with our lives. I think that's that's actually what uh, I might be slightly overstating that, but it seems to me really it seems to me really odd that on the one hand we had this very untypical picture of who Jesus is, and people go there, there, poor Jesus, and feel sorry for him, yeah. and then they just go back to their ordinary lives, and at the same time we don't actually we don't find in the message of Christmas people don't find a compelling, challenging, life changing message that brings them to faith. So that's that. Those are my two concerns really, and I think that's a puzzle. It's a puzzle we need to resolve. So are we saying that this is a typical case? of the book not being as good as the movie so are we are we saying it actually okay so there is no uh stable there is no innkeeper in fact there's no mention of a donkey and three there wise is no men donkey, no. and, it, and mary, mary would not have ridden down they would not no. have traveled so, by donkey because, so are we because... saying then that this book yeah is just a little bit of a rubbish version of the christmas story no, I think it's a much, much better version. Excellent. And, and I think and, yeah. I, <laughs> and I, the, the difficulty is, I think that firstly, it's a little bit like, you know, that you always get the vicar who went into a school and told the primary school kids that Father Christmas doesn't exist and hits with the headlines all about wrong reasons. People are terrified of doing that. They're terrified of upsetting the expectations of those who turn up for the traditional stuff. And, you know, it's um it is amazing how the power of tradition and how people are wedded to particular traditions and uh, what what is doubly funny about traditions though is that people invent traditions out of nothing and the moment they've invented them they suddenly become traditions they're wedded to i mean i don't know about you but around here everyone's now putting you know twinkly lights and santa lights up on and, and and deer made of neon things up on their houses and that's now the latest tradition then and, and you know you can't challenge that people get very wedded to the tradition so so i think christians yeah. christians sharing about christmas are, are terrified on the one hand they're terrified of upsetting people's traditions on the other hand they're not equipped so if you take the tradition away and you take the animals and the stable and the innkeeper and all that what do you have in this place and 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 i think so on the one hand we need the courage to challenge the tradition on the other hand we need equipping so mm. we've got something better than the tradition to put in this place and i think if you read the, the nativity stories in the gospels in luke chapter 2 and in matthew chapter 2 actually you do find something which is which is much better and much more powerful and much more relevant engaging yeah. people 
Yeah, can we do a little Bible study for a second then? Because yeah. um, I've got Luke chapter two in front of me here. Yeah. I've got uh, my screen. You know, I'm not going to read all of it out, but um, you know, you have the birth scene. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Yeah. It says uh, she, this is Mary, uh, wraps him, being Jesus, in yeah. clothes and uh, placed him in a manger because there was no uh, room for him in the inn. So I'm reading. Uh-huh. Right, I'm, look, in. I'm right. This is the Bible. I'm reading it to you from the Bible. Are we saying the Bible? The, which Bible is it? This is the NIV. This is the yeah, NIV, okay. and it's not in the okay. Greek. Um, okay. So, yeah. Uh, yeah see, got... I, now, I've got the TNIV, and it says something different. What does it say there? Well, it says she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Yeah. So or, this is... or another version would say, if I look at, uh, let me just look up the net, that would say something slightly different, I think, the NET. And of course, this is, uh, there was no, oh, no, 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 the NET is no good. Sorry, forget that. <laughs> Stick with the NIT and I'll be... Um, this is again where people get nervous, don't they? Because they say, well, you know, biblical interpretation, it's that, it, that, that's a discipline which allows you to make the Bible say anything you wanted to. But it's not. <laughs> it's, a, it's a discipline and it has its own disciplines. Uh, and again, this illustrates the power of tradition. The, actually, if you ask any, anybody, any New Testament scholar, what that word means, the word in Greek is kataluma. And I always yeah. hate saying the word in Greek is because one thing I always used to, when I was teaching preaching, I always say to people, when you're preaching, never say, and the word in Greek says, because that's just like a power play. But the New Testament was written in Greek. It wasn't actually written in English, which does come as a surprise to some people. Um, people think that the authorised version, you know, dropped down from the sky from God, like the Quran, but didn't. Um, but again, it's the power of tradition. And, and the reason why Bible translators, even though they know perfectly well that the word there, kataluma, does not mean in they still put it in because it's in Handel's messiah it's in the hymns it's in the services but it doesn't it doesn't mean that and, so and what does it mean cataluma what does it mean how would you translate there's, that there's two perfectly good words that here that you could use the word meaning in which is a public place where people pay to stay that is a pandokion and Luke uses that when when uh, when he recounts Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan finds the man who's been beaten up and the, the priest and Levi walk past the other side and he puts him on his donkey. And there is a donkey there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should blend Christmas with the Good Samaritan. There's a donkey there and he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to a pandokion and he gives the man two, gold, two pieces of gold, two coins and says, look after him and I'll pay whatever else it is. So so the word pandokion is there. The word cataluma, which we have here actually comes later on in the Gospels. It comes in Mark's Gospel where, where they celebrate the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, in a cataluma, in, in, in an upper room in a house. And um, there's just a couple of things to know about that. One is that, that Mary and Joseph would have gone to their family home. This is, this is, you know, this is Joseph's uh, home where his family was, his relations were. And it's unthinkable, really, in that culture uh, that you'd have gone back to your ancestral home and you'd have been looking for a pandokion because you wouldn't, because you're going back to your relatives. Mm. And again, it's it's a way we unconsciously read our contemporary culture into this. You know, if I if I went to see my relatives, then I couldn't just turn up at the door and say, "Put me up." Well, I mean, I suppose it depends where you are, but generally speaking, my my family's in the south, so you kind of don't really do that. You know, uh, people in Nottingham are a lot more friendly. But but in in that culture, in first century Israelite culture, you you that's unthinkable. It, all Joseph would have to do is walk into the square and say, "Hello, I'm Joseph, son of you know, and here I am of the line of David." And they'll go, "Oh, come and stay, come and stay," and they'd open their homes for them. That is what that culture did. Hospitality was a number one thing. If you didn't show hospitality to someone and bring them in, that was the the, the most offensive thing to do. So they are clearly in a house because that cataluma the guest room would very often have been built on as an extension. So one of the things you'd have done with the, when, when, when someone was betrothed, betrothed and married, 
is that the, they would come and they would join the family home and then you'd extend the family home by building a, a, a room either on the side or quite often on the roof. I actually stayed in one once. I went to um, the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem yeah. and booked a little room there. And uh, you, it's, it's the hotel is just on the uh, just on the inside. You go through the Jaffa Gate into Jerusalem and you just turn left immediately. And there it is. Yeah. And on my blog, I've got the address. So if you want to book in, you can do that. Oh, and, yeah. and I was shoved up in a, in a little room on the top. And you can see what was happening. It was kind of jerry built. They had a flat roof. And they went, oh, we want to have more accommodation and charge and everything. So they actually built a little room on the roof to go up there and go outside yeah. and go, then go in the door so this is a, a typical kind of way of extending it now if you if you add a little extra room on the roof for a newly married couple the problem is that there's there's actually it's not there's not room enough to give birth because again we know from other parts of scripture we know for example the story of moses about the importance of the role of midwives and again in any any of the first century culture the midwives would have been really key so Another way of translating it, another scholar, Stephen Carson, suggests that the proper, best translation is there wasn't enough space for them in the guest room mm. rather than there wasn't a guest room for them. It actually, the Greek says there wasn't there wasn't a place for them in the guest room for her to give birth. So so if, if they were in the guest room, there was enough space. She, she comes. By the way, that it, nowhere does it say she traveled on the donkey, you know, sort of eight and a half months pregnant. It just says just Texas while they were there. The time yeah. came to, to give birth to her firstborn. So, again, we're constantly projecting all these images into the text, which aren't actually there. Uh, so the most natural reading of this is that they're in the guest room, but she's going to give birth. So they have to come down to the main part of the house. Now, again, in the first century, I've just had a little running debate with a, some American friend online saying, well, you don't keep your animals in the house, do you? So it must have been a stable. I said, well. Actually, if you live in first century Israel, yes, you do keep your animals in the house because unless you're very wealthy, you've got your animals tethered outside the house in the winter, in the cold, to protect them from foxes. What do you do? You bring them into the main area of the house, the lower part of the house where it's an open shared area. Again, very often those rooms would have been houses would have been one room. So in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus teaching. He says, you, you don't you don't hide a light under a bushel. You put it on a lampstand. So it gives light to the whole house. Well, yeah. That doesn't work in my house. It only works if your house is only one room and you only need one light. So it's just it's just we need a bit of imagination to take ourselves back to that first century context. And this is the problem with Westerners 2000 years later uh, in a comfortable home, yeah. reading back on a story yeah. and projecting ourselves. Yeah. And I think, isn't it? I find the story so much more compelling They've come to Bethlehem. It's their, yeah. it's their ancestral home. Of course, there's family there. They're heading straight to family. They're finding yeah. family. In other words, Jesus is born into a family. Yeah. Fits with the Jewish faith. It fits yeah, with the culture. Yeah. Uh, it would be extraordinarily odd yeah. for a young couple like that to be rejected, 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 and yeah. stuffed in a cave out back somewhere. Yeah, it, it would. Just, now, it would. Yeah. Now, now people bring do do to their credit. A lot of the a lot of the traditional readers bring two other bits to it, or two or three other bits to it. Uh, the, the 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 tradition of having animals around the birth of Jesus actually is quite early on. We find this tradition arising in the second century, and part of the reason is that there's kind of a good biblical one, which is in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter one. There's a text which says, you know, the ox knows his master and the ass knows his master's voice, but you, my people do not recognise me. So so actually taking that text and sort of dumping on it, you say, okay, well. If he was laid in a manger, maybe it was a stable, maybe there were animals around, they recognise him. And so you then quite quickly get a tradition of art once the nativity starts being depicted of having animals around who recognise who this person is. And, and people also bring the text from John chapter one, where it says, you know, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Hmm. I think that's for John. That's a commentary on the conflict Jesus has with 
the Udaya or the Jews later on in, in John's gospel. Mm. But people people bring that and import it into Luke's gospel. I think it gives us, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a challenge in terms of how we read scripture on the one hand. There's a practical challenge on the other. The challenge of how we read scripture on the one hand is, well, there's, I think, two bits to it. One is when we open the pages of scripture, we are going on a cross-cultural journey. And I think when we have it translated into English and when we're so used to the traditions, it's really easy to forget that. And, and I think, I think your, ordinary, your ordinary Bible reader, your ordinary person in the congregation, the idea that you're going on a cross-cultural, cross-linguistic journey to read scripture is, is, is a bit unsettling. Mm. But it is true. And it's true of every part of scripture. We do need to recognize that scripture is other than us. And actually, God comes to us and God speaks to us mm. through that which is not of us. He mm. speaks to us through a text that, you know, Luke writing in the first century and conforming to first century historiographic conventions. Actually, with, by mm. the grace of the spirit of God, he can speak to that to us through that. But but we need to remember the Gospels weren't written to us. They might have been written for us. They were initially written to someone else. And we need to. We need to be careful to listen to what Luke is saying to his audience in order to hear what God is saying to us. Yeah. So that, that's, a, that, that's a, a kind of a challenging thing. I think a second element, which I found particularly focused on in the last couple of years, because on my blog, I've actually been writing a commentary on the Sunday Gospel lectionary reading each, each week. And we're just coming back into Luke, which is where I started. So last year we had um, Mark and the year before that Matthew as we cycle through the lectionary. And the other thing that we're not very good at, particularly at Christmas, is actually attending to what each gospel says. If you go through something traditional like nine lessons and carols, what happens is it all gets mishmashed together. And you get a bit from Matthew, a bit from Luke, a bit from John, you know, and all that kind of stuff, all mixed in together. And we don't recognize the distinctive traditions. Now, when you start reading Luke's gospel on its own terms, these early chapters of Luke are not at all about Jesus coming to his own, his own not receiving them. In fact, they're entirely the opposite. People always say, well, Luke's all about Jesus going to the marginal and Luke's, you know, uh, Jesus is coming to the poor. Actually, in Luke, Jesus goes to the rich and the respectable mm. as well as the poor. So if you look at the early chapters, you've got uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. He's doing priestly duty. You've got Simeon and Anna. You've got um, Mary's response. One of the key themes of Luke is that Israel's savior is coming to Israel and Israel welcomes him and celebrates him, welcomes him with open arms. Uh, so Jesus is coming to all, all through Luke. You find pious Jews, pious, observant, law abiding Jews welcoming Jesus as the one who is the consolation of Israel. Um, and that's a pretty important theme. And, and, and that's where the nativity scene in Luke actually fits right within that. In Matthew, it's Herod who rejects and, and, and those with vested power who feel threatened. But actually, the pious, poor, observant Jews are, are welcoming him. And and so so it, it is about reading reading this gospel yeah. in its own context. Can we just stick with Luke for a second, then? Yeah, I want to go back to it. Says that she laid him in a manger. Oh, again, why do we use that word? Because it's romantic. Oh. Because that's yeah. the word the authorized version uses. it's a feeding trough. <laughs> it's a feeding trough. And it, it would have been when you bring your animals in uh, at night. Then the natural thing you'd have had a depression in the ground at the end of the house. That's where you put their straw and their food and whatever mm. so that would be a natural place to lay a child because so you don't put the child on the ground it you know it doesn't it doesn't roll away that you know i mean it wasn't it wasn't very many years ago when yeah. in the uk people would have put a baby in a drawer <laughs> i mean because because people didn't 
buy special cots. I've I, got, I've got a memory, and I don't know if it's true. Yeah, I've got this memory that uh, when my brother was born, I uh, went to stay with my uncle and aunt that lived two doors up from us. Yeah, and they took me in for the night while my mum was in hospital. And I have this memory of sleeping in a wardrobe. You could quite quite easily have done. And yeah. I'm like, what? What is that? Is that oh, a true memory? What memory yeah. is that? But yeah, I, mean, I think yeah, I think Chris, one of the things that's really interesting and challenging about our our particular cultural moment now in in, in mm. UK and Western culture is that we we've become we've become very removed from mm. normal life for many 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 centuries mm. and we haven't become removed prime in the last 150 years and after the industrial revolution as much as we've become removed in the last 20 years in the tesco revolution yeah. because what the tesco revolution has done it's removed us from the nitty-gritty of life I, now you're younger than i am so It'll sound, this will sound this will sound quite to you, but in all my youth, we only ate strawberries in June. Yeah. Because you just could not buy strawberries out of season. You couldn't buy anything out of season because we didn't yeah. have just-in-time delivery. They hadn't built acres and acres of greenhouses in Spain. They didn't ship things over by containers. You know, we, we're now in a situation where if you go into Tesco's, there are 40,000 different things you can buy. In my, in my day, if you wanted some fruit, you went to the greengrocer and he wrapped it up in a brown paper bag. And you only had things in season. You only had Brussels sprouts in the autumn and Christmas. Mm. Some people would say that's great. Yeah. But, but we, we've actually become removed from, I mean, you see funny stories about, you know, kids saying, what do you mean? Apples grow on trees. I thought they came from Tesco's. But, but it's actually our, it's not so much our industrialised Western culture. It's our, our wealthy consumer culture just in the last 20 years that has suddenly removed us from the realities of you know the earthiness of real life where people people couldn't go online on amazon and buy stuff they couldn't go and buy cots for the kids just by the click of a finger you know that that people were relatively short of money until the 1980s and then they had loads of money um and and so actually in 1970 most people in western culture would have been much closer to, it sounds really odd, much closer to first century is like culture than we are now. We've moved further in the last 20 or 30 years than we've moved in the previous 1800. And that's why, you know, for scholars looking at this story, um, they just look at travel accounts from the 1900s and even into the 20th century and say, well, what, what is rural life in the, in, the, in the Middle East? What does it look like? Mm. And actually it looks, it lo- used to look until very recently, it used to look quite a lot like this. Mm. So here's the question. Here's the question. What does this mean in practice? Because yeah. the other thing, when I, when I publish this, the other thing I get is, oh, you can't do that in the local church. You can't upset people. Well, I was charged with, with speaking about this at an all-age service on Christmas Day. So, you know, the, the, the $64,000 question, could I do it? So what we did is we did your typical, you know, all-age, and it means all-age, not just for kids, actually using everybody. Uh, all-age service, we, 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 I, I set myself up on my living room scene. I had my remote control. I had my... You know, I was going to watch the Queen's speech and all that kind of thing. I went off stage and I got everyone to, you know, we set up this nativity thing. We set up the, the, the stable. We got the, we got the baby Jesus. We got the animals. We got Mary and Joseph and all that kind of thing. And then I said, right, I've done that. I'm going to go back and watch my TV. So I went over back to the, onto the stage to sit there. And then I prompted my, my lovely wife, Maggie, to stand up and say, just a minute, Ian, you told me on your blog, it wasn't like that. You told me that Jesus was born in the home. So we had, what we actually did is I had to go back, I had to get off my comfy seat, I'm about to have my Christmas dinner, I had to go to the stable scene and I had to uproot it, I had to bring it into the middle of the living room. 
So I actually physically moved everybody, the whole the whole tableau yeah. across. And of course, what that meant was I couldn't just put my feet up and watch TV anymore because now, instead of Jesus being out there in the stable, I'd visit him once a year, then get on with my life. Now, this kick, this crying, he, did, he cried as well, by the way, this kicking, crying, wailing baby, Jesus, God incarnate, was now right in the middle of my life, right in my living room, right sitting in front of me. So I couldn't avoid him anymore. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't just put, put the Christmas cards away and take down the decorations and forget about him because he was right there. And that seems to me what makes all the difference. Yeah. And this, so this, is, um, uh, this is where it gets exciting. Yes. Because in some ways we, uh, by continuing, and I, have the, I, I do have the problem that, you know, is it historical accuracy or is it missional storytelling that's more important? And I think the answer is, well, well both. Um, yes. You know, uh, there, there's something about the nativity play that is a mission opportunity, and we don't want to it throw. Potentially, yeah. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bash backwater. <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the manger. <laughs> there's something here. When when the Christ child is born in a home, yeah, yeah, and he's crying in the home, yeah, the incarnation. Yeah. Uh, my central theology of all of what we do in, in our yeah. church ministry is living, you know, we live out yeah. the incarnated yeah. one, us, you know, ourselves. The yeah. incarnation is is God moving in and living deep. And if, yeah. the, if Christ is born in the home, it makes for me the incarnation even more uh, incarnation. Yeah, absolutely. The, and the, I think the, it's really interesting, your question, do we go for historical accuracy or do we go for missional impact? Well, mm. hang on a second. Don't we think Luke's gospel was written for missional impact? Mm. <laughs> and and we can see what, what Luke's doing. I think he's doing at least three things. First of all, as you say, he's bringing Jesus, God's presence, right into the centre of life. So you just cannot avoid him. So, so you know, I, I say to people, oh, well, it's not about Jesus being out there and we're going to feel feel sorry for him. It's about him coming in here. He's the focus of celebration. And he's the focus of everyone's rejoicing. So they're all gathering around here. I mean, as you'd expect at any any birth that's what happens isn't it when babies mm. are born people gather in and they close in and they celebrate and they join in together even if they just you know post the photo on facebook you're bound to get 150 comments saying congratulations so it actually draws draws people in second thing is repeatedly in in luke he says two things he says joy and he says peace uh, and it's not it's not a joy which you just visit and, and leave alone. It's a joy which comes into the center of life. If you will receive this Jesus, then he comes right into the center of life. But the third thing that Luke does, which I think is really fascinating, he does it at the beginning of Luke chapter two, and he does it again in Luke chapter three. He's trying to like say it again to make a point. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This was the first registration. Now, there's a, we have to do some work on there because, to line it up with history. That's fine. But the point is, what is Luke doing? Luke is locating this Although, although, you know, uh, first century Israel is on the margins of empire, he's locating it within imperial history. And then in chapter three, he goes even further. He, he has this great long litany of in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, Lysanias the Czech of Abilene and so on. In the priesthood of Anan and the Carpus, he's saying, look, in the midst of all these power brokers, all these power play players, in this sort of big international cosmological scene, into the middle of that comes Jesus and comes John the Baptist mm. to prepare his way. This is a massively disruptive thing. This isn't about, again, the power of tradition. Jesus says in John's Gospel, John 18 to Pilate, my, my kingdom is not, not of this world. It is of this world. It's not from this world. It, it doesn't Jesus doesn't derive his power from all these powerful people, but Jesus comes and has an impact. And in fact, this little thing happening in the corner of the empire is actually going to disrupt 
the whole setup of empire uh, eventually when it comes when it comes when it, when when, it, when when his followers then yeah. follow him and obey him and, and they turn the world upside down yeah. so you know luke is anticipating this is a world disrupting thing you're yeah. not going to be able to avoid it you know what happens in secret in the room here is going to be shouted from the rooftops and everyone's going to hear about it and that's what's really exciting mm. the way that i read that is almost like luke is saying uh you know god moves into the neighborhood but let me locate it even more for you god moves into the neighborhood yeah. but i can give you the street yeah and i can give you the ruler and yeah. i can give you it almost um it's setting out you you think you know the incarnation let me take you deeper into that and deeper yeah. Yeah. and that's one of the things that inspires me with luke yeah it's just yeah. how um it just keeps us taking us in and taking us in and taking yeah. us in so and it's real history it's yeah, real you history you know he goes. He says the beginning. You know, Theophilus. I, I've I've talked to those who are eyewitnesses from the beginning. Again, you can't trade off history on the one hand and existential reality on the other. He says these are real things happening, mm. and they make a real difference because they're real events in real history. Yeah. And my dog's getting really excited about that. Can you hear? Oh, it's great. Well, the, the thing is, <laughs> we're talking about a nativity scene that's based uh, in a home with oh, yeah. noisy animals. Noisy animal, in. exactly. So, yeah, Ian, thank you absolutely. so much for that. I think that there is something so important for us. Uh, our faith is not romanticized. No. It is not based in, you know, we have. It's not removed. It's not yeah, removed. It's, uh, you know, these beautiful tableau images, the nativity scene, lovely, inspirational art, but we're talking about the nuts and bolts of life. Jesus born into a family home Absolutely. during a political crisis. Yeah. And uh, what we're seeing here is God closer than ever. Mm. Uh, and not romanticized and yeah i love the nativity i love seeing the children play the characters yeah but but this is about placing christ right in the heart of human empire and yeah. um, and, and that he comes to to bring that revolutionary overturn yeah. and yeah uh, it, you know for me this doesn't undermine anything other uh, it, um, it just brings me closer to the reality of the incarnation the it would be really interesting wouldn't it to start your nativity play and stay in the time when boris johnson was prime minister and you know yeah. <laughs> and biden was president of the united states i mean that that's what we need to do to actually you know follow what yeah. we're talking is Thank you so much for your time today. Ian, uh, if anybody wants to read any of your uh, blogs or continue further this, uh, where can they find you? Well, my blog's called Sefidzo, which is the Greek word for calculate, and that might be too difficult to write down. So if you just uh, use your whatever usual search engine, search for, search for Ian Paul blog, and you'll, you'll find me straight away. It will be in the show notes attached to the podcast, Perfect. so people will find Great. that. Ian, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you bringing that richness to, to chat, us today. Chris, thank you. And Barney says thanks very much as well. <laughs> Grace and peace. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye.